Tonight, I want to talk about two simple words, yes and amen. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. It says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So this short passage has always intrigued me, but most importantly, the truth in this passage resonates personally with me because it addresses something that I've dealt with the majority of my life. Now, before we dive off into this, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to come here tonight, Lord, and just uh, to share in your word, Lord. Uh, I just ask that you uh, let your words be heard tonight, Lord, and not mine. And we just thank you so much for the truth that we can find in your word. We thank you for your son most of all. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So interestingly enough, this passage is not found in the midst of a big theological discussion, uh, but rather it's embedded in an introduction to a letter to the church at Corinth. Once again... Paul is defending his apostolic authority, which in turn means he's defending the gospel message given to him directly from Christ. But Paul's leading into this discussion, and he's just telling them, you know, I've planned to visit you, but because of persecution and imprisonment and all, uh, all that going on, I've decided that it's best that I didn't. But he wanted them to know that he wasn't a wishy-washy kind of guy. His yeses meant something. His noes meant something. He didn't just frivolously say yes or no without any thought or discernment on the matter. But most importantly, he wanted them to know that while that's not how he operated, that was certainly not how God operated. You ever meet one of those people that like everything you say or they say, they just kind of spin it back around to point to Jesus? Right? That's how Paul was, and it wasn't in some contrived way that he did this. Everything in his life, he pointed back to Christ. In this short passage, he's telling us everything God promises us hinges on Christ. And Christ can be trusted, he can be depended on, he is the truth, plain and simple. And the reason that this passage resonates so deeply with me is because it addresses Doubt. I've dealt with doubt, insecurity, inadequacy, what other word you want to use for it most of my life, I still deal with it as a 40-year-old man. So let's talk about doubt. It's not a pleasant topic. Whenever uh, we talk about it, it's not associated with anything positive. For some, including myself, it can be an embarrassing topic. We think that it's a sign of weakness. I've heard multiple Christians and pastors say, if you ever doubted your salvation, you better go back and evaluate if you were ever saved. Or doubt is produced from a lack of faith. If you have more faith, you would not have doubt in your life. Well, I applaud these people for having such strength, but that's not me. Okay? I have doubted my salvation. I've doubted my purpose, I've doubted my motives, I've doubted my calling, I've doubted my God. I've doubted just about everything there is to doubt. Yeah, Lord be with me. But I'm not alone. 
Perhaps one of the most famous doubters was Thomas. He refused to believe Christ and his resurrection unless it was proven to him. He could touch the scars, touch the hole in his side, which he did. But then Christ reminded him that it was blessed to believe without demanding that proof. Abraham doubted in Genesis 17, 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Not only did Abraham doubt, but he ROFL'd. For those who are over 30, that means rolled on the floor laughing in text. So that's what Abraham did here. But God still kept his promise. The psalmist doubted. Psalm 17 says, will the Lord cast off forever and will he be favorably, will, will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Here the psalmist Asaph is telling, is dealing with serious, serious doubt. However, in the end, he comes back and remembers God's faithfulness. That is how he deals with that doubt. Now, I'm not trying to glorify doubt, okay? I can, it can lead to a lot of awful, ungodly things. I believe it's one of Satan's favorite tools in his tool belt. After all, what did he use at the very beginning? Are you sure you're not supposed to eat from that tree? Is it really going to make you die? He tried to place doubt in our minds from the very beginning. Doubt and God's people dealing with it is written all throughout Scripture. So if doubting is so common, what are some of its common causes? I'm glad you asked. I want to address two of them tonight. I'd like to address people and emotions. People. What can I say? I'm a people. You're a people. As the songwriter so eloquently put it, people need the Lord. We all need the Lord, but sometimes we start to think that some people may not need the Lord quite as much as others. Those people got it all figured out, or at least they got it a little more figured out than we do. We start watching them, listening to them, following them, imitating them, and before we know it, we are worshiping them. Man, that got out of control. Worshiping another person. Now, I'm not talking about celebrities and ballplayers and musicians. That's an entirely different subject for an entirely different day. But I'm talking about people that you come into contact with every day. It might be your boss. It might be a leader in your community. It might be a family member. It might be your pastor. It might be your grandpa. It might be your best friend. It might be your spouse. But you're placing more stock in what they say than anyone else. You walk, talk, and think for their approval. Everything you do is a testament to what they have done in your life. Now, I'm not saying you can't have mentors and you shouldn't have people that are positive, godly, good people that are pouring into your life. You do. Scripture is clear about that. We're not made to be alone. We're not made to walk and live our life in solitude. But let me identify a red flag for you. Who's our foundation? Christ, right? He is our cornerstone, our sure foundation, the standard that the rest of the structure must comply with. Christ is revealed to us through what? The Word. 
Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. We find everything that we need in and through Christ, revealed in his word, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 1 through 2 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come is in the flesh is of God. If we are not careful, we begin to look at certain parts of the building, their beauty, their appeal, and forget to see if they're lined up with the cornerstone. When we have people in our lives, especially those that we are allowing to pour into us on a regular basis, and we start to allow their actions, their statements, their implications to go unchecked, then we are on dangerous ground. Well, if so-and-so said it, it must be true. I trust their judgment. There is such a godly person, a godly man, a godly woman. If they do it, then it must be fine. See what I'm saying? We start putting our trust in the person and not the God that they claim to be representing. When I first got into the financial industry, one of the things that I was told was to trust but verify. You may have heard that before, but there's some biblical truth in that that we just read. And you may even have people in your life that you are allowing to pour into you, and they don't even know Christ at all. Careful. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And if you are not with him, you are against him. We follow up, go a little further in 1 John 4, verse 3. It says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. In this case, you can't compare what they're saying to you to the cornerstone. They're not even a part of the building. All right? Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. How do the people and the influences in your life stack up against the Lord's counsel? How do their actions and speech compare to the word of God? If we look at the context of the past, our anchor passage, that's what's going on here. The church at Corinth is taking the word of these other people over God's word presented to them through Paul straight from Christ. They're in the same dilemma to choose that person's word over what the word of God says. That's the whole reason that this letter is being written to them. So us people, as hard as we try, as hard as we work, as smart as we become, as well as intended as we may be, we still need the Lord. His rock-solid foundation, that is his son, Christ Jesus, people will let you down. Jesus will not. Putting more trust in the creation than the creator opens the door for doubt, temptation, confusion, and ultimately sin in our lives. Many of you know my personal testimony. Some of you don't. I'm going to share that with you today just to kind of 
uh, hopefully help you understand why this particular subject, uh, this particular passage resonates so deeply with me. I've been baptized three times. And so that raises an eyebrow when I lead off with that statement. But let me explain. At five years old, I made a false confession at a church camp. Everybody else was crying. I was asked if I was saved. I said, sure. I knew what to do. I've grown up in church. I went back, um, got baptized, five years old. Fast forward five years later, was really under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, understood that I was not saved. I had not put my faith and trust in Christ. So at 10 years old, in my bed at home, after my dad read some scripture to me that I already knew, I accepted Christ. And again, I knew the next step in obedience was to be baptized. So that's baptism number two, if you're keeping track. All right. So we fast forward a few years later, high school, early college, around in that range, uh, some false teaching had crept into the church that I was attending, and uh, uh, there were some teachings about the Holy Spirit and so forth. I won't get into a lot of detail there, but uh, what it came down to was I, we were being taught that there's kind of a specific formula for you to be saved. And if you didn't follow that formula, if you said these words and didn't say these words and so forth and so on, um, then, you know, you weren't saved. So I trusted those that, I, that were saying this. I grew up with them. And these people didn't have ill intention, just let me clarify, they weren't, they weren't trying to hurt anybody. They, they believed what they were teaching, okay? And I believed what they were teaching. And so I started, doubt started creeping in, started really, really working on me. And I went to my pastor at the time. And I said, okay, I just got to ask this straight out. If I said these words, which you're saying are not okay words to say, if I said these words when I was saved, does that mean I'm not saved? And he said, yes. And it crushed me. <laughs> It devastated me because I believed I'd been living a lie up to that point. And I got down on my knees and I prayed so hard to be saved. I said the words that he told me to say. <laughs> I, I, don't, I couldn't. What was wrong with me? Why couldn't I be saved? So I went through the motions, said I'd been saved. I said the words that had to be what I needed to do. Baptism number three. And I dealt with that event for many years after that. Until there's some, some God-fearing, godly people that were put in my life that pointed me to the scriptures. And said it didn't matter what words I said. I either believed or I didn't. And I did. Sitting in my bed... December 28th, 1989, I believed and I was saved because that's what the Word of God says. And I learned from that experience that you don't put more stock in people and in your emotions than what the Word of God says. Just like other people in our lives, we all have emotions that we must deal with. We must learn to understand them. We must learn to understand how God would have us to. God created us with emotions. Jesus had emotions. We see him in scripture demonstrating anger in the temple towards the merchants. We see him expressing sorrow and sadness for Mary and Martha as they mourned the loss of Lazarus, their brother. 
I say this to affirm that emotions aren't bad. Emotions are not sinful necessarily. The problem lies just as with people when we put more stock in emotions than we do in what the word of God says. When we put more trust in our emotions than we do our God. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is, a deceit, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I think there's some correlation between emotions and doubt uh, that we can see that may be a little more prevalent when you grow up in church. And let me explain where I'm coming from there. We compare side by side. Someone who has, you know, had this rough life, they're into drugs and alcohol and whatever, whatever, they're in prison. Outwardly, they just have this awful road that they've traveled, right? They find Christ. Christ gives them a new heart. They're changed. You see that outward change, extreme change on the outside, right? Now, they still have to deal with stuff just like anybody else, deal with their past. And it's not necessarily an overnight thing, but what I'm saying is you see this extreme contrast between their old life and their new life. Things look and feel different. Let's consider someone that's always been at church, like myself. I've been to church like pre-nine months from my birthday. Okay, that's how long I've been in church. I have known how to act, talk, and walk like a Christian before I even knew what a Christian was. So I find Christ. He gives me a new heart. I change my ways, but on the outside, I may not always look as different. I couldn't really go to church any more than I was going to church at the time, right? Now, I changed the way I look at things. I changed the way I talk to people. I changed my mindset. I've definitely been changed, but you don't see that extreme change on the outside, it may not always feel different for those type of people. And I've heard that expressed uh, from others with similar sentiments. They say, my testimony is not that impressive. I grew up in church and I got saved after I heard the preaching on sun one Sunday. That's it. Everyone's testimony is impressive, for one, because it's not us, it's what Christ has done in us. But they didn't feel much different for them like it would in another situation. But I can tell you, I had an emotional experience when I was saved. I cried. I felt relief. I felt joy that I'd never felt before. But let me tell you, my salvation is not based on a feeling. My salvation was not based on tears or lack thereof. My salvation was not based on a feeling of a new me or turning over a new leaf or a new upgraded life. My salvation is based on the truth of God's word that says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God was raised from the dead, you will be saved. My salvation is based on whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've been here for the last several Sunday nights, then you know that my salvation is based on for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is my assurance. God said it, therefore it is. Your weapon against doubt is the assurance of his word. 
The only way to deal with doubt in your life is with the word of God. We find assurance for his love for us. We find comfort in his steadfastness. We find the cornerstone of truth by which all other claims are compared. Let's go back to our anchor text there in 2 Corinthians. And I want to break down a couple of words that are in that passage. The first one being promises. The word literally means an appropriate announcement henceforth guaranteed by God's eternal law. It's a legal term signifying that something has been officially sanctioned. Wow. All in that one word. Now that word doesn't mean the same thing to us, right? We tend to look at promises in a completely different way than God does. If I tell you I'm going to do something, you may think I'm going to do it based on how well you know me or my track record. Or if I say, well, I promise, oh, it's getting serious now, so now I have to actually put some effort into making this happen. Or we go a step further, and I may sign a contract or a promissory note. This makes it legally binding and attaches some sort of consequences if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. This is our twisted, sin-stained view of what a promise is. You know what a promise is to our God? He said it, and therefore it is. And as if this word isn't enough, Paul goes on to describe God's promises in a very simple yet distinct way. And this brings us back to our initial two words, yes and amen. Two simple words. Yes, probably one of the most sought-after affirmations. If my kids come to me and ask me a question, they're usually looking for a yes. They usually don't come looking for a no, right? We tend to look for yeses and celebrate yeses way more than we do noes. This word is literally translated indeed or certainly. It's a particle of strong affirmation. Then we look at the word amen. We say amen all the time. We say amen. We tag it on the end of our prayers. We say amen in church when we agree with the speaker or enjoy the music. But do we really understand what it means? The word is of Hebrew origin, and it means let it be so or most assuredly. It's an emphasis marker that highlights the importance of what was just said. So let me put that all together literally and say all of the appropriate announcements made by God for his glory and henceforth guaranteed by God's own eternal law are certainly affirmed by his son to which we can say most assuredly, let it be so. Everything we need is found in Christ. 1 John 5, 9 through 13 says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Much simpler than that, right? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Our assurance is in Christ revealed to us 
through the word. These words are written so that we may know. We don't know by what others say, no matter how closely they think they are to God. We don't know how we, by how we feel, no matter how strong those feelings are. We know by the written word of God. Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, goes on to say, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee. You ever watch those infomercials late at night? You can't sleep. Have that tape that you, you know, you could like tape a boat together or something like that, all right? They pitch this awesome product, and then they give you a money-back guarantee. So why not? We have nothing to lose, right? If something goes wrong, we get our money back. We love guarantees. Guarantees sell products. Uh, we just love them. We have 10-year, 15-year, 20-year warranties on things that we buy. We buy automobiles with 100,000-mile warranties, and then we buy warranties on top of that, right? Why do we do this? Because we're looking for assurance and security in knowing that this product won't let us down. But then we run into my favorite, one of my favorite warranties, and it's the lifetime warranty. You love to see lifetime warranty stamped on something, right? We are willing to pay big bucks for a product with a lifetime warranty. We know we'll never have to buy that product again. But I've got one better for you. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. But wait, there's more. I always love to hear that, right? Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Folks, the guarantee we're speaking of today is unlike any other. It's not a money-back guarantee. That's just not necessary. This product will never fail. It isn't a lifetime guarantee. That's not enough. It's simply inadequate. This is an eternal guarantee written in black and white, backed by the maker himself through his son, Jesus Christ, authenticated and stamped on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's a warranty. Now, I've dealt with doubt most of my life. Doubt doesn't discriminate. Like we saw before, there's many in Scripture that have dealt with doubt. Even some of the most faithful Christians have dealt with doubt. But what do we do? Consider the man with the demon-possessed the demon son in Mark 9. He says to Jesus... But if you can do anything, but if you can, he's already got doubt, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If we have Jesus, we have everything. What was his response? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
If you're dealing with doubt, go to the expert. He made us. He can help us. You know, I, I, I like watching commercials. A lot of the commercials are better than the shows, a lot of times, right? So there's this commercial that we see often at our house, and it's from this website called The Nerd Wallet. I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's a site that helps people choose the best credit card for them. It says, need a lower interest rate? Turn to the nerds. Right, you heard that? Looking for travel points or cash back? Turn to the nerds. My whole family is sitting in the living room screaming, turn to the nerds. Now, as silly as that is, the premise is spot on. If you want to know something that's true and accurate, you go to the expert. If you want to know anything about everything that's important in your life, you turn to the creator of all, the giver of life. He has provided this really nifty way of speaking to us called the word of God. You want to know about suffering, why we have it, how to deal with it? Turn to the word. You want to know why this world is so messed up and why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people? Turn to the word. You want to know what it all means? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Turn to the word. God's word is steadfast, immovable, perfect, complete, loving, just the flat-out amazing truth. You want to know about salvation, why we need it, how to get it? Turn to the Word. If you want to know about baptism, what it is, what it isn't, turn to the Word. If you want to know about the church, why it's here, why it's important that we're a part of it, turn to the Word. If you want to know this amazing Savior that we call Jesus, turn to his word. Now pray with me.